0: This week on the Lectures in History podcast, British imperial reforms and American colonial grievances in the wake of the Seven Years' War. University of Notre Dame professor Caitlin Carter explains how colonial America defined an empire.
1: Okay, so today I'm going to start by walking through these imperial reforms, mainly in two realms, okay? So one, land regulation, and the other in terms of taxation and trade policy. From there, we'll cover uh, the colonial grievances that emerge coming out of these reforms, focusing especially on how they get framed, okay? Um, Lastly, we're going to kind of dive into the crises of the 1770s as we head toward this movement uh, for independence and the shift toward that movement um, specifically for independence. Now if you went to high school in the US, which I think most of you probably did, some of this story is probably going to seem a bit familiar. You've heard a lot of, of these policies probably before. But as we move into the American Revolution with our class, we're going to be taking kind of a different uh, focus. So we're going to be really looking at things specifically through the lens of empire. Okay, So that's going to be our focus here. Uh, Key terms for today, you've got the Proclamation of 1763, uh, the Stamp Act, the Enlightenment, which we'll talk about, the Declaratory Act, the Townshend duties, the Boston Massacre, Somerset, and the Coercive Acts. Okay, so quite a few key terms. This is a period of a lot of policies coming into place, court rulings, and these kind of things. So we've got a lot of key terms um, at play. Okay, now last time I suggested that Great Britain's biggest victory coming out of the Seven Years' War paved the path for the Empire's defeat. Um, in North America and today I really want to pick up here to explain how this happened. Okay, so British victory in the Seven Years War left the Empire with a vastly expanded territory in North America um, which you guys can get a sense of in this map which we looked at last time. So yellow, you've got all this French territory that is ceded to the British. So they have this vastly expanded territory. They also have a huge war debt coming out of this war. right? So this meant that they not only had debt to repay, but also a costly new area to defend um, in their imperial holdings. Now, in the wake of the war, successive British administrators um, would seek ways to make the colonies pay what they considered their fair share for the maintenance of this big territory and paying off the war debt. Now to many of the colonists who were really not used to um, interventions or taxes coming from Britain, these efforts seemed kind of oppressive um, and unfair. So today I want to introduce um, some of the complications are some more complications into this traditional narrative of the uh, lead up to the American Revolution by asking you guys to think about these reforms from multiple perspectives. So from the American perspective, but also from the British perspective, um, and also the perspectives of various groups within the colonies. Okay, so we tend to think about the American colonists or talk about them as one unit as we get to this point um, in the history. But we would still want to think about the different groups that are active here and think about these reforms from various perspectives. Okay, so we're not here to answer the question of what was fair or unfair. right? Um, but we do want to think about imperial dynamics and how the logics of empire are shaping these policies and also the reactions to these policies. Now, as we've already discussed throughout the semester, the British government tended not to care too much about what was going on in the American colonies and how they kind of operated internally. right? Generally, they had kind of a hands-off approach. Now, there are some exceptions to this. right? Most notably is the Dominion um, experiment that we talked about last week, which lasted for only a few years. Okay. And there was also a nagging feeling, which we've talked about as well, among some Imperial officials that the British needed to assert more direct control um, over the colonies in North America. Um, pretty quickly after the founding of a lot of proprietary or charter colonies, the Crown began to see a need to kind of clamp down and turn those colonies into Crown colonies, direct, um, under direct control of the government of Great Britain, um, which most of them were by the mid-18th century. Now, the imperial state also really cared about regulation of trade and the ability uh, to charge excise taxes on goods flowing to and from the colonies. Okay, So that's an area that they do really care about. And we've seen that come up again and again through the semester as well. The most notable uh, way we see that come up is with the Navigation Acts of 1651, right, which requires that all goods going in and out of the colonies are shipped through England where they have to pay these taxes. Now in addition to the Navigation Acts, um, there were a number of lesser laws um, imposed over the next century coming after those. Um, that aim to restrict smuggling, so illegal trade and evasion of taxes, and then also restrict any trade that the colonies might have with other empires, right, to keep it within the British Empire. There are also laws and regulations put in place that are really intended to limit domestic manufacturing in the colonies, right? So last week we looked at a lot of these luxury goods, and the British want the colonists to be importing those things from England. They want to keep manufacturing in the home country, right? They don't really want that developing in the colonies. Now, the truth is that up until the 1760s, after the Seven Years' War, colonists frequently ignored a lot of these British regulations. Um, and they just kind of continued to go about their business. Okay, So smuggling is very widespread um, in the 18th century, and so was trade with French and Dutch merchants kind of going against these colonial policies. Colonial assemblies, and this is another thing we've kind of talked about, colonial assemblies also gained increasing power um, going into the 18th century, um, despite British efforts to rein them in. Now, you might remember how after the collapse of the Dominion, um, I talked about how colonial assemblies remained locally elected um, while governors generally became appointed by the king um, back in England. But the assemblies uh, hold on to two key powers. Okay, So you have royally appointed governors in most colonies. But the assemblies, they're gaining power. And part of it is through the two things that they're able to do. One is to approve taxes. Okay, So the royal government has to go through colonial assemblies to raise money and get taxes approved in the colonies. And the other is to decide the governor's salary. Okay, So colonial assemblies are the ones who are able to do that. And these two abilities gave these assemblies a good amount of bargaining power to kind of get what they wanted out of governors and out of the royal government. Okay, In the late 1740s, so right before the Seven Years' War is kind of coming along, the British government Uh, demanded that colonial laws conform to royal instructions. Okay, they start to try to crack down here too. And they encourage assemblies to establish permanent salaries for governors um, to kind of stop this constant change or bargaining chip that they have. But with the outbreak of fighting in the Seven Years' War in the 1750s, these demands kind of fall by the wayside. During the war, the British tended to treat the colonies basically as allies um, in this fight more than as subordinates. And we kind of got into that last time. They start to listen to a lot of colonial forces, adopt some of their strategies, um, military strategies in fighting, and they're treating the colonists more as allies. Though the British are really footing the bill for this war, they are the ones kind of mainly paying for that. Now, after the war, the imperial government really changes its stance. The government in London focused um, on an unprecedented level of attention on the colonies um, and reverted to its pre-war stance of seeing them as subordinates whose main role is really to enrich the empire, is to pump money into the empire. Imperial officials aimed, firstly, to make British rule over the colonies more efficient, more systematic, um, more structured. Secondly, they aim to raise money to help pay off the war um, and to finance the maintenance of this expanded empire. Okay, So to British officials, this is only fair. right? They kind of come out of this, they say it's time for these colonies to pay their fair share. They're the ones living here. They're benefiting from this expansion. They should be paying into this. And taxation had also reached unprecedented heights in Great Britain itself. um, And the colonies were benefiting from British protection um, and expansion. And these officials believe, well, they should also be paying into this. Um, as well. Now, it's on this basis that the British government introduces a series of imperial reforms um, in the late 1760s that severely upset the colonists and ultimately pushed them um, toward independence. Okay, so the first of these policies um, is the one that I mentioned at the end of class last time. Okay, so the Proclamation of 1763, which drew this red line here down the Appalachian Mountains to prohibit settlement further west. Okay, now there are two things you need to kind of understand about this policy. One is the intent, and the other is um, the effect that it had. Okay, so the intent is kind of twofold. First, um, in the midst of Pontiac's rebellion, and we talked about this last time, imperial officials really want to do everything that they can um, to prevent further warfare with Native Americans. It's far cheaper, right, for the British to maintain Native peoples as allies than to fight all-out wars with them. And having colonists move to the frontier, as you read about last time, provoked a lot of violence um, that they're perpetrating on Native Americans and also Native Americans then um, reacting to uh, defend themselves. Imperial officials essentially wanted to, one, avoid having to defend these settlers, right? And two, avoid having to fight wars against Native Americans should they retaliate in these situations. Now, a second intention, which we haven't really talked about before, is basically um, to keep the colonies hemmed in along the East Coast. um, primarily oriented toward the Atlantic, and easier, more manageable for Imperial officials to assert control over them. Okay? Now, the effect of the Proclamation of 1763, it didn't match up very well, um, with the intentions behind it. And it really irritated especially an elite subset of colonists. Okay, So, in reality, the proclamation line did not stop these settlers um, from moving into western lands um, and setting up farms there. So, like the reading that you did for today, some historians um, have called the proclamation line little more than a paper barrier. Right, That it's something drawn on a map, um, it officially prohibits settlement, but it's not functionally having that effect. There's no soldiers out there stopping people from going and, and moving. And in fact, these uh, poorer colonists continued to push into the backcountry, clear land, set up their own homesteads. And as you read about last time, this led to a lot of this spike in violence that British imperial officials were hoping to avoid. And it also really tested the bounds, right, of imperial law. um, And um, because the perpetrators of this violence are often able to kind of get away with it and escape any punishment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: who are going out there and setting up? They're then effectively living in officially prohibited areas. Okay, so they're effectively setting up societies beyond the reach of colonial or imperial governments—kind of a, a wild west, if you will. Right, an area where there really isn't any government. So not only are they out there, kind of murdering Native Americans, um, getting involved in these skirmishes, they're also setting up farms without paying for the land, right, um, and without any title to that property, any guarantee from any kind of government that recognizes that property. Now, as you read about for today, this whole situation really angered elite colonists um, in particular, Virginians especially, um, who had thought that after the Seven Years' War, all this territory is going to be open up to settlement. They had purchased land grants that they then intended to sell to these settlers who wanted to move right for a profit. But if the government would not recognize this as their legally owned property by issuing titles to it, they'd essentially made bad investments, um, since they didn't technically own the land in any way that was recognized by a sovereign authority. So they can't sell it to other people. Now these men... um, were called land speculators. okay, And they included some of the most prominent uh, leaders of the American Revolution that was coming. So like young George Washington over here, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, these kind of leading colonial figures are prominent in, in these land speculators. Their efforts to petition the British government through the Virginia Assembly, the House of Burgesses, uh, and, and try to rectify the situation continually failed. Okay, The British continually reject their claims to issue them titles to this property. Um, and this really embitters them against the empire. Now, the reading you did for today points to uh, or details their efforts to open these Western lands um, to settlement and the responses of, of imperial officials, culminating in the Quebec Act um, and the definitive British rejection of these pleas and just shutting off of this land to any official recognition recognition, Okay, which we'll come back to a, l- a little bit later in lecture. So to sum up this situation with the proclamation line, you had a few tensions created by this policy. right? So you have a general expectation among all American colonists um, after the end of the Seven Years' War that the land the British Empire gains through the Treaty of Paris is going to be open for settlement and expansion of these colonies. Um, but we know, though France ceded that land to the British, In reality, Native Americans are the ones controlling that land right, and living in these places. And they are intent on resisting this expansion. So as poor white colonists and settlers start to move out to those areas, this violence is breaking out between them and Native Americans. This leads to tension between British officials right, and Native Americans, but also between British imperial officials and colonial governments, um, who the British blame for failing to punish or stop these settlers from going out there. Now, tensions are also really arising within the colonies as the governments um, and elite colonists in general are frustrated um, with these poor settlers, right, both for their lawlessness um, and also because they're functionally squatting, right, on land that many of these land speculators claim to own, right, and wanted to sell to them. And this in turn had these elite land speculators really angry with British imperial officials for not recognizing their land titles um, and officially opening settlement, which would make them money, of course, but which they also think would help control this settlement and, and erase some of these problems and this violence that is coming up if it was a more controlled move of people to the area. Okay, so now that we've covered kind of these land regulations and the divides that are coming up there, we need to turn our attention to the other main area, right, that the British are enacting reforms in this period, which is in the realm of trade regulation um, and taxation. Okay, so in addition to stopping the development of Western land... um, Yeah, Peter, go ahead. ahead. Sorry, Before we move on, did the British expect the proclamation line to be a permanent thing, or was it a stopgap until they came up with a better
0: way to regulate or a better way to organize colonization of
1: that land? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, not necessarily completely permanent, right? They did gain this land from the French. They're trying to incorporate this into their imperial holdings, and it's not necessarily that they view expansion as never going to happen, but they're trying to organize that, right? They, They want to be leading that process. They don't want colonists in the colonies to be leading that process, okay? And they also recognize that They're just not in a position to fight wars with Native Americans to do that at this moment. And so whether it's going to be through warfare or through diplomatic relationships, that has to be kind of pushed down the road. So not necessarily permanent, but for the time being, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So in addition to stopping this development of um, the Western land, imperial officials moved to tighten restrictions on trade and impose new taxes in a bid to help pay off all that war debt right? Okay, so this started really in 1764 with a spate of new laws that get introduced by the Prime Minister George Grenville and passed through Parliament. Okay, the Sugar Act um, of that year reduced the existing tax on imported molasses that's coming from the French West Indies. Okay, so it starts with a tax reduction. But in doing this, it steps up enforcement to prohibit widespread widespread spread smuggling, right? so to actually try to stop any kind of illegal trade or tax evasion, um, to do that. In a bid to counteract the tendency of colonial juries to acquit merchants of accusations of smuggling, um, the act also strengthened admiralty courts, which are Navy, uh, naval courts that are going to be set up in the colonies where violators are going to be tried without a jury. Okay, so they're removing that power from the colonies. Now taken together, the colonists saw the act for for what it really was, which was not actually a tax reduction really, but an effort to get them to pay a tax that they otherwise might have evaded by by smuggling. Okay, Now that same year, uh, Parliament also passed the Revenue Act, um, which added new goods, such as wools, hides, these kind of things, to a list of enumerated goods that had to be shipped through England. Now, taken together, these acts seem to threaten um, the profits of colonial merchants um, and seem sure to aggravate a recession that had set in in the colonies following the end of the Seven Years' War. Okay? The threat to the economy gets further aggravated by the passage of something called the Currency Act that same year, which reaffirmed a ban on colonial assemblies printing paper money. As legal ten, uh, tender. Okay, so that'd be something that they might do when they're facing uh, an economic crisis. The British officially prohibit them from from doing that. Okay, now the next year, the imperial government goes a step further here, imposing a direct tax on the colonies for the first time. Um, the Stamp Act of 1765. Uh, it required all printed material produced in the colonies to carry a stamp that's going to get purchased from British authorities. Now so far we've really been talking mostly about excise taxes, Okay, so things that merchants are going to pay taxes on goods that they're moving in and out of the colonies. The Stamp Act is a direct tax, that's going to touch people directly in the colonies. Now the money raised from this is intended to pay for the stationing of British troops, um, in North America without having to go to the colonial assemblies to get them to raise money. Now again, unlike the Sugar Act, this new tax, uh, tax is touching all the colonists, okay, from merchants and lawyers, out to farmers, artisans, um, kind of everyone. It's especially resented by those who are um, very engaged in political debate in the public sphere, people who produce newspapers, pamphlets. Um, okay, So not generally a group that you want to upset with your policies. Right? Now, the prospect of troops being stationed in the colonies was worrying um, to many colonists, for sure. But they're perhaps more threatened by this direct tax, um, which was unprecedented. Okay? So for the first time, Parliament just totally bypasses colonial assemblies and challenges the authority of colonial elites to consent to taxes that are, that are getting imposed on them. It's the most significant assertion up to that point of parliamentary sovereignty over the colonies. And the colonists, they didn't take it well, right, Um, to put it simply. Uh, Any other questions about land regulations or any kind of tax policies at this point? Okay. Um, So as we move into thinking about colonial grievances that come up in response to these imperial reforms, it's important to understand the context in which they're, they're kind of being voiced. Okay, so the colonies had come a long way, as we've seen, from their early 17th century origins. Now, we just talked a lot last week about how the British colonies are more tightly connected Right to Great Britain in the 18th century than ever before. So you have port cities in the colonies um, that are really part of a cosmopolitan Atlantic world at this point, where a lot of goods are being exchanged and moved back and forth between Europe and the Americas, but also a lot of ideas are, are going back and forth as well. Now this is significant in kind of two ways. Um, the first was the Enlightenment, okay? So another one of our key terms for today, which was basically an intellectual and kind of cultural movement across Europe centered kind of mainly in France that gave rise to a new way of thinking um, and a new uh, political ideas. So the Enlightenment was really characterized by an emphasis on the use of reason um, and a belief that nature and human relations could be rationally described, um, studied, and shaped by humans. Okay? That humans have a lot of agency in determining the course that events are going to take. Now, it's also characterized by an expansion of the public sphere. Okay, And this is really marked by more print material being produced, higher literacy rates um, across Europe. Now the colonies are also really taking part in this movement, albeit kind of at the fringes. Um, Popular associations and the periodical press also grew throughout the 18th century in the colonies. Literacy rates are also going up in the colonies. And this is bringing more and more people into political conversations and into politics. There's also a huge number of taverns and coffee houses, especially in Philadelphia, which is the biggest city in the colonies in the 18th century. Um, And you can see it's a little bit blurry, but you can see kind of an example of how people thought about these spaces. It's another political cartoon um, with Ben Franklin conversing with some Quakers um, in a tavern in Philadelphia. Okay, so the public sphere is really growing in the colonies. More and more people um, are engaging in political discussions and taking part in these discourses. Now, the second way that this Atlantic connection was significant was the importation of specifically English political ideas into um, the colonies. Okay, so colonists, after all, they'd never felt so British, right? We talked about this a lot last week. They began to see um, measures taken by the crown as impositions on their unique rights as Englishmen. Okay, so they start to take up British political rhetoric, um, English political thought, and assert their rights. Essentially, elite colonists believed that their liberty um, meant that they could only be taxed with their consent, expressed through representatives of their choosing. Okay, so they defended their rights as Englishmen to consent to taxes. They argue that Parliament could not tax them because they didn't vote for any members of Parliament. They didn't vote and send any members there to be part of that process. Okay, If we're going to be fair to the British, most people back even in England, let alone in Scotland or uh, Wales, they also did not vote for members of Parliament. Um, yet they are taxed by laws that are coming out of there. Okay? In defending the ability of Parliament to tax the colonies, British, uh, a lot of British uh, thinkers advanced the theory of virtual representation. Okay? Again, something you might have heard before, especially in high school. Basically, what this argued was that all British people were represented in Parliament, even if they did not directly vote for representatives, because the representatives shared a common interest with them, and they were meant to go there and make decisions based on the shared common interest. In fact, American colonists start to argue that not only did they not get to vote or send members to parliament, but representatives in London did not share their interests. Okay? So they start to say, this really doesn't work for our colonies. Okay? A lot of the people making these policies actually don't have the same um, best interest as us at heart. Okay, so you have committees of correspondence um, forming to coordinate resistance to the Stamp Act. Um, across the colonies. Colonists are raising Liberty Poles. They're having effigies of stamp collectors. There's a lot of popular um, outcry here. Um, the Sons of Liberty, led by Samuel Adams, who you can see up here, was one such group in Boston where the governor, Thomas Hutchinson's uh, house, was attacked, vandalized um, as part of this movement. Now at this point, um, in the col- a lot of elites in the colonies start to get caught off guard by how widespread this kind of resistance to uh, British taxation and, and, um, and the anger that's coming out. And it's starting to kind of cross uh, class lines at this point. And elites get a little concerned. So the British are kind of seeing this. Um, in 1766, so just the next year, they actually back down. Okay? Um, they repeal the Stamp Act. And here you can see a political cartoon depicting a funeral for the Stamp Act. Okay, So this gets celebrated uh, as a major victory in the colonies. But even as they do this, Parliament issues the Declaratory Act, which you guys read for today, um, which rejected the Americans' claims that they couldn't be taxed by Parliament. So the Declaratory Act comes on the heels of the Stamp Act. They back down on that. But they come back and they say that Parliament has the ability to pass laws for the colonies and the people of America in all cases whatsoever. So the colonists win a, a battle here in getting this specific tax repealed, but they don't win the war on the larger principle here. Parliament comes in and says, no, 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 we're not conceding that point. Now, sure enough, uh, the next year, in 1767, Parliament passed the Townshend duties, okay, named after the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles uh, Townshend, who, who proposed them. Now, these were taxes um, imposed on imported goods that were going to be collected by newly created customs commissioners who would also work to suppress smuggling, so to stop any kind of tax evasion or illegal trade, which is how a lot of merchants in the colonies are making their money. Now, even more galling to to the colonists uh, about this, the revenue from these taxes was intended to pay the salaries of colonial governors and judges, removing that ability from the assemblies. Okay, So just streamlining that coming through the royal government. Colonists uh, colonists again responded with outrage, believing that the new taxes represented another violation of their rights as Englishmen, uh, to consent to their taxes, and to control the pay of their uh, officials in the colonies. Leaders in several colonies start to call for a boycott um, of British goods in response to this. Okay, So here we have the non-importation movement that begins as a way to encourage Americans to disavow British luxury um, and buy American-made things, um, especially like clothing. Now you have Virginia planters, they start to support this movement because they found themselves at this point in a lot of debt for the luxury items, a lot of things we were looking at last week that they had been purchasing um, from England. And they saw this movement as kind of a way to cut back their own spending, to kind of reduce the debt that they had um, with British merchants. Now, of course, urban artisans um, who are in cities, they welcome this non-importation movement because it creates business opportunities for them, right? Um, It gives them an opportunity to boost manufacturing and sell their own goods. Merchants in port cities, they're a little more reluctant, um, but most of them eventually kind of agree to take part um, in this movement. So then you have these kind of extra-legal local committees formed in communities Um, across the colonies to enforce this boycott. So it's essentially a system of neighbors, policing neighbors, to kind of hold the line against British goods, send this message to imperial officials. And it proved especially effective at creating the sense of a common cause among the colonists. Okay, so in this heated atmosphere, tensions are simmering just beneath the surface, okay? especially in Boston where royal troops had been stationed in 1768 after some rioting had broken out when the British had seized a ship for, for smuggling. Okay? So this kind of culminates on March 5th, 1770, as a fight breaks out between, uh, between colonists who are wielding uh, snowballs and rocks um, and British soldiers. And this breaks out in the center of the city, leaving five colonists dead. Though two soldiers were um, put on, were, who were put on trial were convicted for manslaughter in the wake of this, the incident was far from an event of mass violence. Okay, um, And blame is a little bit more ambiguous than these kind of uh, depictions uh, convey. So still, the confrontation came to be known as the Boston Massacre. It gets really played up in the colonies, partly through prints like this, created by Paul Revere, which really portray this... Um, scene of soldiers who are very well organized, armed, against colonists who seem to be very much um, hiding, unarmed, um, not engaging with them. This is slightly inaccurate. Okay, the colonists were provoking these soldiers. They were throwing things at them. There was kind of more of a fight going on. Um, So this is kind of an early example of some uh, fake news, you might say, or kind of a piece of propaganda that gets circulated widely to create this into a major event um, that is going to drive things. Now, even if the event um, was not portrayed entirely accurately, uh, this kind of piece was very successful, and it did set the tone for tensions going into the 1770s, Okay, Um, which is where we're going to head now. Any any questions at this point about any of the British taxation or response to that? Yeah, Hayden? At this
0: point, did the colonists want to go to full-scale revolution, or were they intending to do that, or were they just trying to get rid of the taxes and the prohibitions? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. They are very much not wanting to revolt. Okay, They're very focused on just getting rid of these taxes and these policies, and they're very much making their case through a claim that if you respect our rights as English citizens, you cannot impose these taxes, and that's all we want. Right? They're not uh, talking about breaking away from the empire, they're just talking about wanting to be treated as, as equals in the empire and claiming those rights. Okay, so very specifically focused on these policies, not on any kind of movement for independence, for sure. Other questions? Yeah, Peter, go ahead. Is the declaratory
0: act seen as kind of a, uh, like a rebuff of, what was it called? You said that the idea that all like members of the British Empire represented in Parliament, because it basically says, no, we don't have your best interests at heart, we're going to legislate to you what we think is best, like, yeah, that's, as a colony.
1: That's that's a great question. So it the Declaratory Act is really kind of a reassertion of that idea of virtual representation. It's kind of saying you don't have to vote for us or anything like that, but you do have to respect the laws that we make because we are the sovereign authority in this empire. Um, and they but you're getting to an important point that the colonists start to make, which is, well, what does it mean to represent our interests? Don't we have to tell you what it is for you to do that? And you do have parliaments, or many in parliament, start to make an argument that, no, in fact, we it is our job to determine what is the best interest we will tell that to you and you follow those rules okay so yeah that is the origins of a lot of that kind of argument about how political representation in general should work and that's going to keep coming up as the americans also found their own governments and try to figure that out for themselves yeah other stuff okay so heading into the 1770s you have tensions that were very high Right between the colonists and the British government. So only seven years after their greatest victory in the Seven Years' War, a series of imperial reforms had provoked massive backlash among um, American colonists who were asserting their rights as Englishmen in this bid to retain their autonomy and to retain this kind of voice in the empire. So at the dawn of this new decade, things continue to really go downhill, which moves us away from a focus on these specific policies Toward uh, this movement for independence starts to kind of coalesce. Now, before we get into the incidents of violence that actually start to break out in um, uh, and the imperial response to those in the 1770s, I want to briefly address the way slavery fits into um, all these imperial reforms and the colonial grievances that are coming out in this period. Okay, so you guys might remember from the piece we read about the 1619 project that one of the most controversial claims, Nicole Hannah Jones. Made in the opening essay was that one of the reasons the colonists fought the Revolutionary War um, was to uphold slavery. Okay? And in response to a request signed by some prominent historians, you had the New York Times kind of clarifying this statement to say that some of the colonists fought the Revolutionary War to uphold slavery. Now, part of the reason this claim was controversial is because it's a matter of interpretations that not all historians um, agree upon. Okay, So some, who Hannah Jones was really building on, think the colonists in this period were very worried about the British threatening the system of chattel slavery um, in the colonies or attempting to turn enslaved people against them in any kind of uh, struggle that they might have. Now, you have other historians who, who kind of argue that the colonists, elite colonists, were not necessarily that worried about this at the time. A lot of the debate over this and, and how important a role this is playing or how top of mind this is for elite colonists um, centers on a British court ruling that's issued in 1772, referred to as Somerset, okay, in which a judge sides with an enslaved person, James Somerset who sues for his freedom after being brought into England by a customs official who, quote, owns him um, in Boston. Now, in the ruling, uh, which technically applied only to this one person in question, right, not wider, the judge concludes that slavery has no basis in natural law and has no basis in English common law. So in order to be upheld in England, that there would need to be um, a law passed by Parliament. Um, to make it something that existed in England, or else it cannot be presumed to exist. Now, and uh, James Somerset wins his freedom um, as an outcome of this case. Again, though the ruling applied to only this one individual, news traveled fast, um, and it was broadly interpreted as establishing the idea that an enslaved person would be free when setting foot into England, okay, so that slavery is not going to exist in England. Now, some historians think that this alarmed white colonists in the Americas who were worried that, like taxes or land policies, the British might suddenly decide to interfere with the system of slavery. Other historians argue that this was not so widely talked about, maybe, and wasn't a central concern for elites in the colonies. Okay, so there's some disagreement, the, the effect that this had in the colonies. But this did happen. There is coverage of this, and, and this is out there. OK, another thing that is very sure um, coming out of this is that white colonists are using the language of slavery to describe the threat they believe British policies and taxes are opposing to their autonomy, okay, to their liberty. Um, that liberty, that notion of liberty, was rooted for them in secure property rights. Okay? So the right to buy and own land, um, and the ability to prove, uh, prove taxes being top, top of mind there. Now, this was a society at which point uh, considered an enslaved African as a form of property, too. Okay? So the degree to which white colonists also have this in mind um, when they're expressing their concerns, that's still kind of open for debate, but that's what's kind of on the table. Now, for black Americans in the colonies and British critics of the Americans, the hypocrisy is very clear here. Okay, so calling for liberty while maintaining slavery was inconsistent. Many black people and anti-slavery advocates, like um, poet Phyllis Wheatley, who is writing in The Colonies, um, they adopt the language of this imperial struggle to point out this inconsistency and to make a case for their freedom and a case to end slavery. And we're going to be tracing the way that this dynamic develops um, as the movement for independence grows and fighting actually breaks out um, in the Revolutionary War. Okay, so we have kind of that's kind of the way slavery is fitting into this this conversation, and we can talk more about that as we go forward. Shifting back to moments of direct um, conflict, the next major incident between the colonists and the British that comes up after the Boston Massacre also happens again in Boston. Um, in 1773, when a group of colonists who were disguised as Native Americans, interestingly, boarded three ships in the harbor where they threw more than 300 chests of tea into the water, um, resulting in the loss of 10,000 British pounds worth of property, which in today's dollars is roughly $4 million worth. Okay, so a lot of property uh, loss there. This is known today as the Boston Tea Party. um, And the destruction was in response to a tea tax that had been imposed and which the colonists rejected as yet another violation of their right to consent to taxes. Okay, Now, the British respond quickly and very harshly to what they see as a big provocation here. The new prime minister, Lord North, he declares that it was time to really put to the test whether the British had real authority in the colonies, to kind of go out there and demonstrate Um, that they were in control, or else figure out if they weren't. Okay, now the result of this was the imposition of what the Americans called the coercive or intolerable acts. Okay, now the Boston port was closed until the tea would be paid for by the colonists. Parliament empowered military commanders to lodge soldiers in private houses. And the colony's founding charter was significantly undercut by town meetings being curtailed Um, and authorizing governments to appoint some positions that had previously been elected. Now, some of these measures might remind you again of the dominion, um, at which point the British had tried and and failed to impose some of these similar changes. Now, around the same time, the British government issued the Quebec Act, which you also read for today, which granted toleration to Catholics in the previously French uh, province that bordered the New England colonies, Um, which had now been integrated into the British Empire. It provided for an appointed legislature in this new colony. Okay, So there, the assembly was not going to be elected. The the king was going to appoint members to that legislature. Um, And it also incorporated all the land seized by um, the British, ceded by the French after the end of the war, into one new province of Quebec. And that effectively shuts down any individual colonies or land speculators along the East Coast from being able to expand westward into that area. Now, taken together, the colonists see this act as a major threat to their political autonomy. Um, They see that as hemming them in, and they also see it as a threat to Protestantism, right? Um, This acceptance and toleration for Catholics, and the acceptance of bishops, for example, holding political power in this region. Now the Intolerable Acts, paired with the Quebec Act here, were sort of a turning point for the colonial resistance movement. It became even more widespread, even more intense, and even more organized. But I want to emphasize that even in 1774, 1775, there's almost no talk still of independence. Okay, that's just not really coming to mind for colonists. The idea of breaking with the British Empire is pretty much unthinkable um, to most colonists. Instead, they're really still emphasizing their rights as English subjects. They echoed the writing of liberal reformers back in England, who pointed to corruption um, in the executive ministry in the government um, and called for the reform of parliament to make it um, more representative. They insisted that they remain loyal to the king, um, and they were merely seeking to be considered an equal part of this empire rather than subordinate to the metropole. Okay, Now, despite this, things were still getting pretty heated. And it's in 1774 that we have the first Continental Congress convening in Philadelphia, which is where we're going to be picking up next week as we move toward independence. Okay, So as we look ahead, um, as you read for next time, I'd like you guys to take the opportunity to reflect on the Declaration of Independence, which you'll be reading. In coordination with the Roney article, which you'll also read, to ask yourself kind of these questions. Okay, so were the Americans rejecting empire and imperialism in 1776, or were they just rejecting some parts of the British Empire? And if so, which parts are they rejecting? Which parts do they not want? Um, How do we account for independence after a century of tightening ties with the British Empire? What is it that leads to this sudden break here? between the colonies and Great Britain. And then lastly, I want you guys to really think about how does American independence reshape the power balance in North America, um, specifically from the vantage point of Native Americans and also enslaved people within the colonies. Okay, so that's where we'll be picking up moving ahead. Uh, thank you all so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures and History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out season two of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.